Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. On behalf of FIDON, the London School of Economics, and the Alfred Hallen Society, and I am the director of the Alfred Hallen Society, I welcome you to this the presentation of already our second book, Living in the Endless City. The first one was The Endless City, and I think we are just on the way of a preparing of an endless book presentation series. <laughs> but I promise you there will be other books, because this is a great... And, uh, urban age is something really great. In the early 80s, I have to say, John Naisbitt predicted the continual shrinking of the cities in his book on the megatrends of the future. I think he was on top of all the citation <laughs> indexes of the scientific community with this. Uh, and as people, he said, thanks to new media, would prefer to live in small towns rather than the large megacities. And of course, Alvin Toffler also predicted something similar. I think you could earn a lot of money being a false prophet. I think it's one of the most successful businesses in the world, being a false prophet. Of course, these prophecies became outdated. And we know already that at the end of the century, 75% of all mankind will live in cities. And London is not a village, as Mr. Nesbitt predicted it. It is a big, world-class megacity. How urban age started? I think it started in 2003 at a progressive governance summit in London. And uh, it was a, the older generation will remember something like New Labour. And it was a congress on New Labour. And the most important thing for a scientific community on congresses are coffee breaks. And during an illegal coffee break, because it was no official coffee break, I had the honor to have coffee with Richard Sennett. And this is the moment when Urban Age started. A year later, in 2004, we have been to Barcelona, and we have seen the, the conference of the LSE, a lot of mayors in Barcelona, and I was amazed that Juan Claude, I hope I pronounced it in the Catalan way, because I don't want to have a difficulties between Germany and Spain again <laughs> on pronunciation, on pronunci on, on, only on pronunciation. And, and I learned through him that you can read a city, that you go through a city and you can read a city. Well, then I met Professor Burdett and we started Urban Age in New York. It was in 2005. In 2007, we started the Urban Age Award which is not only a conference of uh, experts, but it is uh, coming from the grassroots of a city, citizens who resist the conditions where they are living, who resist to live in a favela, and they start inside a favela or a slum, they start building a new city. And this award uh, goes to these people, and we had the first Urban Age Award in 2007. 2008 was the first book, yeah? The Endless City, with by Dean Sujit and by Ricky Burdett. And in 2000, I think it was 2000, in, in the last year, the last year we started LSE Cities because there was so much knowledge uh, assembled that we saw that we should, Germans always like big organizations, then we started a small organization inside the British organization, which is not easy. This is LSE Cities. And LSE Cities was born last year. And this year, we have the second book, 
at the end of this year we'll go to Hong Kong, next year to London, and you show it is an endless conference series. What is Urban Age about? If you take this book and you take the last pages, you can see all the participants of these conferences. This is an enormous amount of people. And it's not an ivory tower. And although we are an institution which is always tempted to become an ivory tower, uh, we are, Urban Age is not an ivory tower. And the, the strengths of Urban Age is these people who are at the end of these books, the participants of our conferences. These are mayors, these are scientists, socialists, these are people from NGOs, these are victims of urbanization like me, these are people from all aspects of society. And we bring them together, and coming together, they develop new ideas. And one of the best places to develop new ideas is the London School of Economics. I think this is one of the great, important institutions, which is not an ivory tower, which is highly scientific organization, but also which is open to the real world. And this is a book of the real world, the world we live in, we have to shape and we will live in. And also this presentation is part of our, and I say it all the time, part of our common endeavor to, de to develop a grammar of success for the cities of the future. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Ricky Burdett. Thank you, Dan Sutic, for bringing all these ideas to, together in one beautiful book. Thank you for Freedom, and I've tested already today in many bookshops of um, the city. The book is there, and it looks, the bookshops look always better with a green book now. They have a green tie for the book. Uh, the next book will probably be a red book, huh? I don't know, or black book. I thank you all for being here. Thank you for participating. Thank you for discussions. And our aim is to make cities a better place. Thank you very much for coming and being with us. Thank you, Wolfgang. Could we have the lights down and the air conditioning up? <laughs> also, because uh, both things are needed and uh, lights down so that you can see the screen. Uh, I'm Ricky Burdett, and I'm delighted uh, to be here. And uh, Dan Sujik and I, we were able to create two books together, and we're going to manage the evening together. Uh, the way we are going to structure the event is that I will give a presentation uh, using slides, uh, showing what's in the book, uh, drawing all the great ideas from other authors, not mine. Uh, we then have the great uh, benefit of having some of the key people that Wolfgang has been referring to, the participants of these uh, networks, of these conferences. Uh, we have Joan Kloss, who in fact was then uh, the mayor of Barcelona when this whole thing started a number of years ago, has moved on to be the Spanish ambassador to Turkey and is now the head of UN Habitat. So we're finally pleased to have someone in charge of the cities of the world and particularly the poor in the cities of the world who cares about design and cares about the issues that we care about here. Uh, two of the authors uh, in this great book, I'll introduce them later, are going to talk about Istanbul and uh, uh, Sao Paulo and Latin American cities uh, in uh, general. Suketu Mehta was, is unable to be here, but I will in a way cover part of his ground in my presentation on Mumbai. 
What we will then do is uh, ask some of the uh, speakers to stay at the front and we'll be joined by Richard Sennett, who's already been referred to in Saskia Sassen, well known to many of you here at the LSE as uh, key players in the understanding of cities both at a global level and at what I would call a visceral level of uh, the understanding of the relationship between uh, the social and the visual. That's the core agenda of uh, the work we do here in the Department of Sociology. That's the core agenda of this book. So that is the structure of the evening and let me uh, try and run through uh, nearly 500 pages of uh, work, which is a collective work, and start by stealing Dan's best ideas and best images. Um, we're talking about understanding cities. There are different ways of understanding cities or living in cities. This is one way. Mr. Ambani, arguably, Ambani, arguably the richest man in the world, but certainly the richest man, depending on what his brother says anyway, uh, in India, has decided to live this way in Mumbai, in the maximum city, with a maximum building. It's 24 stories, it's a single house and a bit of office space. And this is how he lives in the city. It's one way of interpreting the notion of living in the city. This is another way of great modernist architect Oscar Niemeyer in Sao Paulo, a building that those of us who are architects, those of us who are designers, admired as the modernist project of putting people in buildings up in the sky, looking out and getting access to uh, air and light. This has become a sort of vertical favela, and we'll talk about that a bit later. But it's a response. It's a utopia which has actually been realized. And then there are other ways of thinking of the city. This is a brilliant scheme by a brilliant architect, Zaha Hadid, uh, in Kartal on the east side of Istanbul. We don't know whether it will be realized, but it's an image. An image has become very, very important in talking about these uh, dimensions. And as you can see, it's an image which breaks the rules of orthogonality. It deals with sinuous curves. It deals in a way with the playing of the metaphor of the informal. It looks as if it hasn't really been designed. That's a sort of intriguing aspect. And we'll come full circle when we come to the end of this. And this, again, I stress, is what the book is about. But there are other ways of looking at these three cities. Istanbul, Sao Paulo, and Mumbai. These are other ways in which the same cities lived in. Not that far from the 24-story uh, tower block that we saw a moment ago occupied by Ambani is this. I mean, it happens to be a Muslim slum, which I'll come back to because one of the Urban Age Projects uh, awards uh, was given to a project in this area. So remember this in your mind. In Sao Paulo, this is how people get by. Uh, a city which is, on one level, very highly planned, you could say, compared to others. This is how informality actually supports, as Saskia Sassen has often noted, actually supports, the informal supports the global city, the formal economy. The two need to live together, and people get by by just doing that. And Istanbul, this sort of innocuous image, always strikes me as being extraordinary. When we went there with our colleagues uh, here on the front uh, row, we were struck that these buildings, the thing that you see on the right, is called the Jejekondu. What is a Jejekondu? It means literally built at night. Because if you build something at night, or did in the 60s, you couldn't be taken away from you. It actually has a sort of legal status. So the whole city, something like 40% now, of modern Istanbul is built like this. And therefore issues of rights, who owns it, what actually happens to the future of it, can be played as political tools in the city of the future. And in the case of Erdogan, 
uh, now the Prime Minister, it's exactly what is happening, and we'll hear more of that from Professor Kader. We've heard that from Wolfgang that this is a project started with Richard. Uh, I hadn't realized it was so linked to New Labour, so I hope that things might progress nonetheless. Uh, but what is important about it is that it, the book focuses on the three cities in red, which I've alluded to already, but importantly in the context of what's going on elsewhere in the world. And it is part of a much longer investigation into cities around the world. And here I just want to spend a few minutes and what is the backdrop, what is the context in which we're talking about uh, Istanbul, Sao Paulo and Mumbai? Well, we know that now over 50%, in fact 53% of people live in some sort of urban form or another, but they only occupy these cities 2% of the world's surface. There's a lot of space left, you could say, but the question to us as urbanists, as uh, designers and those of you who are policy makers is what shape do these cities take and what impact does that shape have on the ecology of the planet, we'll come to that, very important, and on the social well-being of people who actually live there. It's a change, of course, and I think Dr. Kloss will talk about this, that while poverty mainly was in rural areas, that is beginning to shift. We've now had 50 million people from, in the last decade, move into cities and in our state of poverty. In the same time, 150 million people moved out of poverty in rural areas. So cities are becoming not just the centers of uh, positive improvement, but also places where the poor concentrate. What are we doing about that? Well, what we're doing about it is very little at the moment. 33%, one in every three of you sitting here, live today or moving into cities in slums, in favelas, in uh, informal settlements, without any basic form of sanitation or um, uh, access to water or other forms of, of uh, uh, infrastructure. And then the other issue, which nearly needs to be taken into account, and this book, as part of our research, does focus on it um, to an important degree, is that because cities concentrate energy uh, uh, wealth generation, because they have factories, because they have offices, because people live there and go to work, they obviously consume large amounts, a disproportionate amount of energy in the world. And that is why they contribute to something like 75% of global CO2 emissions. Now, why is this important to discuss here at the LSE? It's not just a techie issue. And with Nick Stern, Dimitri Zengelis, and others, we're talking a lot about this. Because a small difference in the way you plan the city, the shape, its imprint, how wide it is, how narrow it is, what form of transport you have, actually makes a big difference to the, literally, the ecology of the planet. So cities take on a meaning which goes well beyond what happens at the edge of its limits. And this is what happens. This is a picture of Mumbai uh, only a few years ago. If Suketu Meto were here, he would have reminded us this of another aspect of this. It's not just a disaster, which it is. Hundreds of people died in July 2005 when the floods in Mumbai reached 37 inches. The, highest ever recorded by mankind, apparently, so I'm told. What Suketo says in the essay in the book is that this triggered something else. It triggered the other side of the coin. What happened is that the people living in slums came out of the slums to rescue the people in cars on the motorway and brought them to their overcrowded homes and fed them. So in other words, the city actually changed uh, in the way it actually dealt with people. They trusted each other because they can't trust governments. And that is something which needs to be understood in the face of all these risks. 
Now, where is this happening, and what are these processes we're talking about? You can see from this image um, that in the green color, you see cities and agglomerations which are over 25,000 people. And it's quite extraordinary to actually look at this image. It's not uh, maybe a, a bit difficult to see from the back of the room. But it is interesting to see that in Europe, apart from Holland and a bit of south southeastern England, where we are now, the densities are relatively modest. Look at the United States. There's a lot of um, development on the edges, on the East Coast and on the West Coast. Uh, South America, nor nearly all on the edges. Uh, Africa, there are some pockets. But look at what happens in India. Look at what happens in uh, the Pacific Rim and places like the Philippines. I mean, you know, one can joke that where is everybody when you look at Spain? Uh, or uh, Portugal by comparison to what is happening elsewhere. So the issue of density is incredibly important and I know Dr. Cross will be coming back to that. Now again, Saskia's work has taught us an enormous amount about the fact that cities are be, uh, there because they are the centers of flows of people, flows of money, flows of capital, and of course flows of information. I mean, cities are hyper-connected now and much more so. I was fascinated in the research that we did to find out that the uh, most busy flight from country to country is New York and London, 54 flights a day, but that pales into insignificance according, uh, compared to the flights that there are between Rio and, uh, and uh, Sao Paulo every day, 196, or between Washington and uh, New York. So there are other ways of sort of reconnecting uh, cities. Now, let's reflect a moment on where this growth is, but not just in terms of geographical terms, but in terms of the time issue, because uh, I think one of the factors which interests us at LSE cities, at the urban age, as a research question, is not just what is the shape, but how quickly is this change actually happening? Can you actually create a city like Rome, where I was lucky enough to be brought up in, or Istanbul until the 19th century, uh, which accumulates and has that sense of accretion and complexity that you get over time in a matter of 10, 20, 30 years? I think the answer is probably no. I think, as we heard in Shanghai, that you have to build fast to accommodate things, but then you've got to knock down and maybe start again. And what you see on this map is in the dark green, the development that happened in the cities of the world, more than 150, up to the 1950s. Uh, in the lighter green, you see the period from the 50s on till the uh, roughly now. But importantly, in white, you see where the growth is going to be over the next decades, according to the UN. So basically, North America, Europe is dark green. It sort of happened. Uh, Latin America, it's sort of happened. It's still going to continue. But look at Africa. Look at uh, India. And look at um, the uh, east coast of China. And these are numbers that will be familiar to some of you of the rate at which people are either born or are moving in to cities like Dhaka, Lagos, Mumbai. Every hour, you have 49 people moving into Dakar. In London, it's one. So put things into perspective. And London is growing compared to other Western cities. So for every minute and a half that I speak, someone is actually moving into Mumbai or Lagos. Now, most importantly, behind the figures, behind the statistics, what interests us and what is present in the book is a series of interpretations which goes underneath the skin of these cities. What, what, what is behind what we're looking at here, which is Mumbai, which has grown 2,000% in the space of one, uh, one century? 
What is behind Sao Paulo, which sort of seems to go on endlessly? The Endless City, you could call it that, as Dan invented the title a number of years ago, which grew 8,000%. Uh, from a tiny village in the basically 30s and 40s, it is now 14 million people. Or Istanbul, which we all think of as this great historic city. It is a small part of it. But this is the skyline. It's not a photomontage, which sometimes one thinks is actually the case. Now, it's only 1,300%, because a lot of it was there before. And what is important as a question for us, as I was saying, is what happens on the ground, in the public spaces, and the design of the buildings, which affects the people and their lives as they grow there. And this is only a small part of the answer. And I'm sure you can read this perfectly well, and you can understand what is there. Now, this is part of the quantitative work and not the qualitative work that we've done. But I just want to raise one or two statistics to help me tell the story in many ways uh, of what is there. Justin McCurk has written a wonderful essay which in a way unpacks some of these figures. In the top you see Mumbai, Sao Paulo and Istanbul and then London as a sort of example. Just one or two statistics to put things in context. I've already talked about the number of people moving in per hour. You see it over there in the second column. The sheer numbers are extraordinary. I mean, Sao Paulo is, wider Sao Paulo is nearly three times London, right? It's nearly 20 million people, nearly coming up to Mexico City. Istanbul is uh, 12 and a half. And Mumbai, which is something like 90 million, half of the people there live in slums. So the population of London today lives in slums in Mumbai. And if Mumbai continues growing at the pace it is likely to, it will become the largest city of, in the world, overtaking Tokyo in a matter of 25 years. And if that proportion remains the same, what are we left with? And these are absolutely the issues we're interested in. Because if you look at another statistic, which is a social statistic of crime rate, murder rate, in fact, um, we in London are very worried when 17-year-old kids, boys, are stabbed to death. Rightly so. But the murder rate is actually the lowest, even compared to Istanbul and Mumbai, which are very, very low. And, but those are nothing in compared to the murder rate in Sao Paulo. And so you can go on and unpack a series of other statistics. Just look at Sao Paulo and London, very different economies, GDPs which are sort of an order of magnitude of five of difference, but they have the same number of car ownership uh, in a completely different environment. Now that goes back to the issue of the environment, the ecology, which I will go back to as I conclude. So here we talked about the numbers, we've talked about the global distribution. The book then goes on through a series of essays to understand what is actually happening. And one of the biggest issues is the issue of security and fragmentation of the city. I think all of us who've been at the urban age have been shocked, frankly shocked, by seeing how many cities are continually becoming more rather than less social, uh, spatially fragmented and socially divided. And this is not an untypical or unfair photograph of Sao Paulo. It could be Mexico City. People caged in to keep others out. Now, there are different ways of doing that. One way of doing it is to push people out way to the edges of the city. Uh, and Sao Paulo is like an octopus, which sort of uses up its resources on the edges. And these are violent areas with absolutely no infrastructure, no hospitals, no schools, no nothing, effectively, except for polluted and dangerously polluting water. Uh, meanwhile, the other city is happily being built with designers probably based in London. In fact, I knew a few of them who've done those horrible buildings. Uh, but there we go. But the point here is the difference between one world and another, which actually in, in, in inhabit 
the same world. And many of you have seen this image where it's not just pushing them out, but actually bringing these two worlds together. A favelas on my side with hardly any water next to uh, housing projects which are so, where the residents are so wealthy that they have swimming pools. The key point for us who are looking at cities in this way is what happens when that wall in the middle comes down. And I know Richard Sennett will perhaps be talking about this later. What is striking as we look at these cities is that you saw those statistics of violence in Istanbul, very, very low compared to Sao Paulo, right? You don't need a wall, you don't need a gated community, but the lifestyle tells you you do. So this is what's happening. And African cities are very much the same, even though you don't need it. That is actually what's happening. Indian cities, Pune and elsewhere, are being built very much in the same sort of idiom, the same metaphor, therefore becoming so spatially fragmented that the porosity of ancient Venice, or uh, in fact Dharavi, as Richard Sennett talks about, the difference between borders and boundaries becomes something which defines the experience of the contemporary city. Let's look at um, Istanbul and what is happening there. You look at this picture and you sort of imagine, well, these houses, what are they like? What's, what's it like actually living there? Uh, well, first of all, a high percentage of what you see there is informally built, originally. Now there's sort of discussions as to what happens afterwards. And as Dan says in his essays, you know, Istanbul is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. I mean, like Venice or, or San Francisco, when you're next to the water. But when you step a little bit away, not that far away, you get this. Toki, the government institute, uh, the equivalent of the HCA in this country, is building three million homes, three million homes in the next 20 years. That's three quarters of the housing stock of the whole of London. And on the whole, it's being built like this. Uh, and they need to find places to build them. So they've identified soft targets. The government has identified central government. And one of them is this area, which I find incredibly beautiful. Very seductive, called Tarlabashi, unfortunately inhabited by Kurds, Africans, blacks, and others. And that's being targeted, and much of it probably going to be demolished. This is the lifestyle uh, of what is there now. And this is the new city that is emerging. This rather beautiful building, the Sapphire Tower, uh, elegantly designed by elegant architects, sits totally incongruously in a landscape of change. And everything you see to the left, according to the city planners and the city fathers and the prime minister, who of course used to be the mayor of uh, Istanbul, at one point needs to be changed and needs to be reviewed. So who decides and how does that happen? Let me move on to the final stages <laughs> of my presentation. Well, one is democracy. We had Jerry Frug, a professor of law from Harvard, a fellow traveler with the urban age, explain to us how many cities have a democratic deficit. And one way of looking at it is, is, where is the edge of the city? And so the work we've done and presented in the book shows the outlines of these cities. And here you see the ones I've been talking about compared to London. And simply put, London on the far right, you can see, has got a green line around where Boris Johnson has authority. He is in charge of transport for London. He's in charge of, the, uh, of uh, many uh, aspects of uh, the way the city is run and managed, all within, more or less, where seven, eight million of us live. Now, if you look at Sao Paulo, you see that shape in orange of a dog, right? That's actually the city of Sao Paulo, but the dark bit is where people actually live. It completely spills over. So unless the governor and the mayor get on and talk to each other, and they're often of different parties, you've got a problem. Mexico City, it's a problem multiplied by 22 million people. In that sense, Istanbul has sort of more or less got it right with a government structure which envelops a much, much wider metropolitan area. 
We go at, in some detail in the book to look at the DNA of the city in terms of some of the statistics, and I'll come back uh, in the end to the design issue and the sort of social side. But it's interesting to see how cities like Mumbai, these are uh, uh, pyramids, age pyramids as they're called, which show the lower ages at the bottom and the senior ages at the top. Uh, and you'll find that cities like London or New York are a bit like me. They have a sort of middle age spread. So the middle on the top is, is really quite uh, fat. While the ones which are uh, growing a lot, clearly, like Mumbai, uh, have nearly 50% of the new population under the age of 20. This is an extraordinary potential of what you can do. But you've got to design a city for people like that. You've got to design a city with a school, not use a pavement to have lessons. So those are the issues that we confront. Another aspect very much brought on again by Saskia's work and in her essay is where do people work? What is the role of manufacturing in the city? And what we've looked at there is how diverse these different cities are in terms of the nature of work which actually happens. Let's take two of them. Uh, Istanbul today, whose economy is still growing incredibly rapidly uh, despite the recession of the last years, um, has got something like nearly 40% still in manufacturing as a base. It's a very active and dynamic city. This is a relatively new textile, uh, uh, I was about to say farm, it's where the, the, the people who work in the textile industry actually reside. While this is New York, where only something like 3 or 4% of the economy is actually based on manufacturing. So one needs to understand cities in the round. And one of the things that Philip Rode, who runs the program uh, with me and has written this essay with Dimitri Zengelis and, and uh, Nick Stern, looks at is the effect of transport on uh, the environmental balance of the city. And here again, we found some extraordinary things. Mumbai, perhaps you're not surprised, nearly 60% of the population either walks or cycles to work. Well, that's sustainable. But, you know, there are benefits and disbenefits of that. In some cases, of course, they walk because they just have to cross the road or the pavement to find their place of work. But the question is, what's the choice? And that's the critical thing for us in terms of looking at the grammar of success and where we should take cities in the future. What's the choice? Well, with World Bank money, uh, and I'm sure a bit of IMF support, what they're doing is building this Bandra Warwick uh, road, which basically <coughs> takes you from one island to another island. Now, we know what's going to happen. You're going to get congestion of more and more little Tata cars from one end to the other. This is not going to solve the problem of uh, Mumbai in the future, but that's where money is being invested. In Sao Paulo, 14 million inhabitants, 7 million cars, exactly two people to one car. If it were London, that would mean that we'd have uh, 14, 15, sorry, we'd have 3.5 or 4 million uh, vehicles in the city, and it would be unworkable. That's why in this city there are as many helicopters, private helicopters, there are 30,000 million dollar uh, millionaires, sorry, 30,000 dollar billionaires in Sao Paulo. That's why the helicopter is one of the most used forms of, actual, of uh, transport for those at the top of the pile. Now, here I want to conclude by saying, well, how does this book, how does our research actually try and understand the shape of the city on the people who live in them. And one of the ways is to actually understand the density, how closely people live uh, together. And if in green you see the density of London, in the shadows that you'll see emerging, you'll see the other three cities. London is sort of a five, six, seven-story city. Mumbai is actually roughly a two or three-story city, mainly if you take into account the shacks. 
Look how high the density is by comparison in Mumbai. That is actually Sao Paulo, and that is Istanbul itself. Now, one of the strongest essays, as I uh, come to a conclusion uh, of this book for me, is the architect Alejandro Zaira Polo's uh, essay, a great architect in his own right, who's had to confront building at the age of 40, buildings anywhere in the world, including Istanbul. And he talks about the fact that we've, he's been having to work in a sort of no-frills <coughs> culture, the, the, the easy jet culture as opposed to the one you see below. What does that mean when you translate that into an environment? Well, unfortunately, it means mainly that. You begin to see buildings of this sort, and Suketu Mehta asks in his essay, is there one crazy architect who's designed this and this and this? You know, is, that, is it the same person who's doing that? No, it's the same economy, it's the same construction, and it's the same brief which leads to these alienating environments, mainly on the fringes of the city, which fail to create those layers of complexity that I talked about before. So how do we try and solve this problem, and what do we do as architects and as urbanists? Well, here's one example of what not to do, and one example of what to do, and I will end there. One example of what not to do is how to deal with pavement dwellers in Mumbai. Only a few years ago, people who were living in this sort of condition were removed because they had to expand uh, the roads. And they were removed uh, to an area on the fringes of the city, in fact, one of the Muslim uh, slums I showed you right at the beginning. And this is an aerial view of that slum. And there's the slum, and you'll see that area there. Now, most of you will think, except those of you who've heard me say this again, so I apologize, uh, in the past, will wonder, what are these things here? They look like oil depots or something commercial. No, it's the replacement housing designed definitely with World Bank funding and designed in a substandard way. In other words, it's a below the regulation of that country because it's for poor people. That's, that's the reason. Therefore, the distances between windows is, is beneath what is normally allowed by the regulations. And the people who used to live in the pavements were basket weavers from a close-by fishing village. They needed space to make their baskets and to trade with the people on the pavement. In this building, you can imagine they can't do that. They don't have the space. The rooms are tiny. They're about as big as the space I'm occupying at the moment. They don't have any passing trade. So what do they do? They go back and do their trade back over there. They don't have money, they've lost income, therefore they can't pay for the electricity in the lifts. Therefore they put rubbish in the lift cores and rats come and you get a vertical favela. That's by design, not by default. And that's at the heart of the research that we've done and at the heart of the book. So that sounds a depressing way to end, so I won't end there. <laughs> we conclude with uh, essays which really say, well, what can we do? And um, some of the work we found by architects like Alejandro Aravena begin to say, well, why doesn't one address the dynamics of this informality and deal with the um, mechanisms which you see on the bottom slide? It happens to be a slum uh, on the outskirts of um, Johannesburg with new housing types which actually can deal with this flexibility. Uh, and you can see uh, some of the housing which has emerged over there. It's difficult to tell from this picture, but basically they can adapt to uh, families who grow and different activities on the roof, on the back, on the side, uh, but very much responding to the requirements of both the local and the global economy. And I want to end with, I think, what is a positive message, and it was referred to uh, by Wolfgang in his introduction. We gave the first prize of the Deutsche Bank Urban Age Award, in this case $50,000, 
to something which is a community toilet. I said, why would one do that? Well, in a slum like the ones we've seen, where access to basic sanitation is essential, the local uh, residents did something very simple. They cleaned up that toilet that you see at the bottom and divided it from men and women from one side to the other. The women were able to have a space where they could actually get together and talk without men abusing them. And they could talk about violence, they could talk about up children, they could talk about things which would otherwise not be possible. Above that, they actually built two rooms, only two rooms, where the husbands of one of these people, Priya Shankar and I, met him, brought two computers from the place he was working at the airport, and started training up the kids. They also created a kitchen, which you can see there, to increase the quality of the food. This 50,000 has triggered an enormous sort of positive uh, reaction. And at the moment, a colleague of ours, uh, who has also written the book, Raul Marote, is building or designing 50 such toilets across the city. So that's interesting how things can actually happen. Now, I do want to conclude by pretending that I were Suketu Meta. That's all. That's all I can do, because he would say it such more eloquently than I can. In talking about Mumbai, and he could really be talking about any of the three cities that I've been discussing here. He talks about Mumbai as an assault on one's senses. Too many people touching you on trains and lifts at home. There's just too much you can't actually breathe. But in talking to one of the residents of those environments that you have seen, they talk poetically about Mumbai as a bird of gold. Try to catch it if you can. It flies quick and sly, and you'll have to work hard to catch it. But once it's in your hand, a fabulous fortune will open up to you. So that's the promise of the city as he articulates it. And that for us in living in the endless city is the message, the metaphor that we hope will cut across uh, all of you who then read it. I want to thank a whole number of people. There's a list over there. The publishers, Emilia and Sarah. The designers who did, you know, again, a fantastic book. But of the in-house team, since it's his last day, I want to thank Omer. Where are you? Somewhere. For putting the book together. Thank you. And thank you all. Now ask uh, Juan Clos yeah. to give us his thoughts on what is happening what is happening to cities around the world. Thank yeah. you. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Ricky. I think that uh, 
This uh, book is really very interesting and there's a huge of knowledge base here uh, explained. And I just wanted to add some reflections uh, from uh, my recent experience in UN Habitat. The advantage of UN Habitat it, it, uh, is that uh, it provides a global vision, which I think that uh, already in this endless uh, city project, choosing uh, Mumbai, choosing uh, uh, Sao Paulo and Istanbul, you are already addressing. But when uh, we look at the urbanization in the world, uh, and if we, hope, we put it in a little bit of historical context, we see in the recent 500 years at least, uh, the huge uh, urbanization process of the West, which took place mainly in the uh, 18th, 19th and 20th century. And it was mainly in parallel with the Industrial Revolution. This is the uh, kind of urbanization mm, uh, that we know in Europe, in the United States, in uh, Australia. And uh, uh, then if we look in, in quantitative terms, uh, we have got uh, uh, a similar uh, urbanization process which is the one, uh, in terms of numbers, uh, which is the one that is taking place now in China. In China, we have uh, this huge uh, urbanization process, uh, people moving, moving from the west to the east, from the rural areas to the coastline, and uh, 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 probably now reaching 600 million people, perhaps more, 600, 650 million people, uh, and uh, it, all, of them, all of that is done in a very short period of time. And we see this massive urbanization process in, in China. Uh, and then the, the, the next step that we are seeing is the urbanization of Africa. Africa with its new megacities, uh, capital of uh, the post-colonial capitals, different capitals of the post-colonial countries in Africa, are growing also at uh, extraordinary uh, pace. But I would like to make a, a, a kind of a hypothesis here in order to understand the similarities and the difference between this uh, process of urbanization. My point is that the Chinese process of urbanization is, that, is the last classical process of urbanization in the sense that is one urbanization paired with industrialization. As opposed to the uh, urbanization of Africa, which is the big, the first huge, massive process, process of urbanization without industrialization. And this is something that uh, opens a new uh, set of hypotheses of how these different, different processes are going to be managed. Uh, if we look at the, at the industrialization history, we have seen that apart from the uh, West, let's say, then after the Second World War came uh, Japan, which immediately uh, got a process of industrialization, very successful, 
the Japanese miracle and a huge process of urbanization. Then we saw Korea 20 years later, and now we are seeing this flourishing <coughs> urbanization with, uh, in terms of numbers, uh, which is the, the China case. But in all these three cases, Japan uh, in the 50s, Korea in the 60s, and uh, uh, China in the last decade of uh, the 90s and the first of this century, uh, we have in common that people go from the rural areas to the cities with the promise of an industrial job. And they arrive to the city and they have a job. As we, if we look at what is happening in uh, Africa, we are seeing the, exactly the same massive process of urbanization. And the difference is that uh, they go directly to the slums without anything resembling to a formal job. And there's no promise of a, a job uh, in, the, in the feasible uh, near future. And that presents a huge challenge, which, uh, because I think that even from the theoretical point of view, we don't have analytical um, instruments to predict how this urbanization is going to evolve. If you look what is happening there in these cities, is these slums that we have seen, uh, slums without sanitation, uh, slums, uh, you know, with um, the mean uh, size of the residential unit, it's uh, 10 square meters, which includes kitchen, bed, uh, and in fact nothing else. No toilet. And then the toilet, it's the, the toilet that we have seen here out, outdoors. And uh, in, in a lot of, uh, of these um, slums, there are not many toilets. And then uh, you know how they call it, no? the flying toilet. <laughs> This is the flying toilet. It's a plastic bag. Okay. Uh, you can imagine what what that represents in terms of hygiene, because there's no uh, piped water, of course. Uh, and in fact, we are seeing in the evaluation of the Millennium Development Goals that the goal on uh, water and sanitation is not just improving, it's worsening in Africa. Most of the Millennium Development Goals, more or less, they, they do some improvement. But in the case of Africa, the Water and Sanitation Millennium Development Goal, it's not just not improving, it's uh, you know, going in, in the uh, oppos opposite direction. Then this is the question. We have uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, 65% of the population live, urban population lives in slums. And uh, I will give you another figure. 65% of the population live in slums. 
and the next figure is that in the 15 uh, next years, the African cities are going to double its population. Okay? There's no planning. There's not, no such a thing as urban planning. Nowadays, 65% of the population lives in slums, and in 15 years, they are going to double the population. 80% of the economy, 85, depend of the country, is informal. No taxes, no... Nothing. It's, nobody knows. 60% of the youth is unemployed. And it's catch in the uh, gangs uh, and, and uh, spontaneous organizations which grow up in the slab. That means that we are facing a challenge that those uh, generations, it's not just one generation, probably there are two or three generations which are lost in the terms of uh, chance of improving their education, uh, chance, uh, chance of having a socialization that can be, you know, expandable or can relate with the rest of the people. And uh, on top of that, when we see what are the econo economic policies of these uh, poor countries, they don't have the, mm, the capacity or even the sometimes the will to ignite the industrialization process. Then my question that I would like to give here, put here in an academical uh, setting with a lot of uh, professors and students, is how are we going to deal with a continent which is going to double the urban population without industrialization in the next thing, in the next 15 years. Thank you very much. <laughs> Ron, thank you uh, for that, and we, we will try and address that light question in a moment. Uh, Professor Kater uh, from uh, Bosphorus University and uh, uh, a key contributor to this volume and commentator on uh, urban development and Istanbul in particular uh, will talk about his views of uh, Istanbul. Thank you. Thank you. Um, my, my essay in this book uh, was titled uh, Measuring Success um, and the idea was that uh, the, um, the um, transformation of a city such as Istanbul um, from what it was um, 30 years ago to what it is now um, can be gauged in a way um, of course, uh, success is a very relative term. Um, it depends on what kind of uh, game uh, we are playing. Uh, but the game um, that has been uh, played uh, over the last 30 years or so with um, what has been called globalization, 
is uh, really uh, quite standard. Um, all the cities that are of a certain scale try to share um, a larger portion of the global flows. They try to capture more of the global flows of capital, people, tourism, culture, information, the kinds of things that uh, Saskia Sassen uh, talked about um, in her seminal work. But the idea also is that while doing this, uh, these cities should um, um, try for a certain uh, level of civility, um, avoiding overt tension and polarization, maintaining a certain uh, level of uh, tolerance, a level of civility, and diversity, despite growing disparities in income and lifestyle. I'm aware that these are all soft terms, and they are certainly related to all kinds of things that sociologists talk about, so to culture, uh, political accommodation, uh, sometimes social policy. Um, but um, it's very difficult to go into um, these situations trying to understand why, uh, for instance, the murder rate or the overt levels of um, tension and uh, and, and, and hostility that might be visible in some cities are not visible in the others. It's certainly the case, however, the two um, things that I mentioned are related. If there is, in fact, too much overt hostility and too much overt tension, the project of trying to capture more of the global flows might uh, falter. Now, coming to Istanbul, um, I think there is a, a certain um, understanding among its denizens that um, the, um, the transformation has, in fact, been rather successful. And uh, in terms of the physical appearance of the city, it is undeniable that there has been a successful transformation. It is much more glittering. It used to be grim, dark, dirty, um, smoky, polluted. Um, it is, in fact, clean. It, there are high rises of uh, office buildings, which uh, you have seen uh, slides of. Uh, in terms of its cultural uh, amenities, there's uh, a lot of new museums and festivals and uh, all the historical wealth. All the monuments are, um, are showcased uh, prominently and, uh, and, 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 and uh, aesthetically in an aesthetically pleasing manner. The city looks much more finished than it used to. It has roads, parks, cafes, etc., etc., and especially, of course, in the areas that are close to the um, sea, the Bosphorus and the Golden Horn, uh, the public space has emerged as a very uh, welcoming uh, space with lots of cafes and restaurants and and in fact, uh, among tourists and young people in Europe who uh, travel from one city to the other uh, looking for excitement, it has become um, something that is um, uh, uh, cherished and, and, and valued. Um, a week ago in Financial Times, there was an essay by um, uh, Edwin Heathcote, um, in which uh, he claimed that uh, in an informal poll of the readers of FT, uh, Istanbul was uh, chosen to be the most livable city, uh, uh, first uh, among five um, that contended for the prize, uh, London, New York, San Francisco, Paris, and Istanbul. Now, I'm sure this is an exaggeration uh, coming from... Uh, 
the fact that, relatively speaking, Istanbul is in a very different uh, situation now than it used to be. But here's a quote. Um, quote, cosmopolitan, busy, young in its population, but historic in its fabric, socially mixed with a huge disparity of income. Um, socially mixed despite a huge disparity of income, I think is the meaning. This is indeed the case. Uh, it is a, a, a soft city. Uh, it is a safe city, and it seems to be quite tolerant of the diversity and uh, the kind of uh, tension that you would expect from what I will describe as uh, spatial restructuring and kinds of things that uh, uh, Ricky Burdett talked about, uh, regeneration and slum clearance and... Uh, and, and, and the new spatial um, uh, structuring of the city. Despite all these, um, it seems that there is a level of civility which is in some ways uh, surprising. Now, one question is how did we get here? Um, and of course, uh, as we know, cities are not built from uh, scratch and, um, uh, and, and, and cities are built and then we live in them and uh, we live with the past. Um, in, in its uh, penultimate incarnation as a third world metropolis, um, Istanbul was, um, um, as I mentioned, a, a real third world city in the sense that it was uh, crammed and was receiving huge amounts of migration from the uh, poor countryside. And it was a standard uh, third world metropolis in the sense that everything was informal. Housing was informal, as um, Ricky mentioned, uh, these um, uh, uh, relatively sturdy uh, uh, houses uh, which were built uh, illegally but uh, almost 60% uh, of the housing was illegal, not because necessarily there were shacks like in the Mumbai style, but they were fairly sturdy uh, and, 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 and relatively spacious houses that were built uh, contrary to, to, to the zoning regulations, to the property regulations, and, and illegally in some sense. But when 60% of the houses are illegal, um, that becomes something else, of course. That's the simple informality. Um, the, um, the, the informality, of course, uh, was together with uh, cheap labor and uh, all kinds of uh, uh, workshops who, which themselves were informal and illegal. But all, these, all this began to change in the 1980s as uh, Istanbul, in a way, reclaimed its status as a central place in a total in a whole geography, including um, the former uh, Soviet uh, states around the Black Sea, the Balkans, and the Middle East. And Istanbul became a place of attraction uh, with uh, um, tourists and capital and small trade, uh, what we used to call suitcase trade coming from all these uh, countries around the region. Um, however, for the kind of globalization that we now um, uh, observe and witness, that kind of um, uh, globalization, sort of uh, working in the interstitial economies and informally, is not sufficient. There has to be more of a formalization of all these flows and networks. And in fact, that is what happened only quite recently. Um, perhaps in the last 15 years or so. Uh, political balances until then did not permit 
all kinds of things. It did not permit the dismantling of the populist stance, which had allowed the informality, for instance, of housing. It did not permit the kind of uh, bureaucratic uh, uh, um, uh, permission that was given to suitcase traders who came uh, from, for instance, Ukraine and Soviet Union and, 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 and Bulgaria and Moldova in order to uh, trade uh, without any uh, uh, paperwork, without any bureaucracy. So the new uh, situation over the last 15 years or so uh, meant that the uh, political decision makers, the bureaucrats in Ankara, as well as those in the municipality of Istanbul, had to make some institutional legal changes that would permit the formal accommodation of these global flows. And this was when, I think, the projects of uh, what is usually called the urban coalition in other words, the Istanbul bourgeoisie, the Istanbul um, uh, uh, capitalists who wanted to uh, accommodate these global flows, who found themselves space within these uh, global networks. They and the politicians finally came on the same page and started doing all kinds of things, including uh, the uh, transformation of the physical aspects of the city. Now, one of the things that they um, did, in fact, was um, uh, also something uh, which uh, came uh, out uh, very much in the uh, literature of the global city, was the, uh, the um, uh, uh, establishment of a, a coherent narrative about the city, how to market, if you wish, the city in the global arena. And um, as you can imagine, uh, the marketing of a city in a particular narrative as opposed to another might in fact uh, uh, be uh, crucial in terms of uh, defining its success. And what they came up with, I think, was uh, a fortunate one because they tried to recapture for the city some of its cosmopolitan imperial background. In other words, referring to the multiculturalism and the multi-ethnicity and the diversity of religions that existed under the Ottoman Empire and how Istanbul embodied this uh, uh, diversity by uh, foregrounding uh, the uh, monuments uh, of uh, uh, Christian churches and uh, synagogues and the fact that uh, all these different populations had found home in the city during the uh, Ottoman centuries, and then building the museums and the cultural heritage sites, sites around uh, uh, this theme. So cosmopolitanism and the fact that uh, Istanbul existed as a bridge, uh, which is an old hackneyed metaphor, but uh, a, a bridge between the East and the West, and the Ottoman Empire was located especially in this, uh, in this uh, spot, um, this became something of a selling point. Um, this um, <coughs> narrative also benefits from the, um, the, the current uh, climate, if you wish, of sort of a post-Western or post-European uh, 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 image of a world civilization that uh, fits very much into uh, the picture. It also meant um, this uh, new um, agenda where <coughs> politicians and the uh, urban coalition and Ankara politicians especially could see eye to eye uh, wa uh, was something in the, in the same um, uh, 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 
project as formalization, uh, wasn't exactly repudiating the old populist claims and old populist uh, formulas, but uh, uh, abandoning them to some extent by formalizing the economic relations in the city. And by that, I think the most important, of course, was formalizing the relations of property in land. Because, as was mentioned, uh, the kind of uh, property that is associated with uh, informal housing is something that is very difficult to, 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 to invest in, to commodify, to uh, make into those large uh, and tall uh, skyscrapers. You have to have a new regime of landed property in order to be able to do so. And this has been happening through all kinds of things. One of them is the uh, TOKI that Ricky Burdett mentioned, uh, which basically is, an admin, is, is a government agency that appropriates public land and makes it into commodified land which can be sold to, um, uh, to, to private investors and also to uh, people who need uh, housing. Another way of doing it is um, urban regeneration by um, by regulating the property relations in neighborhoods such as the one, the picture that you uh, saw. Um, although I have to say that uh, the, the kind of, uh, um, sort of pessimistic interpretation of urban regeneration doesn't seem to apply because there has been, there has developed a new culture of negotiation um, uh, between the government uh, agencies and the uh, residents of, this, of, the, of the neighborhoods, which usually ends up with uh, uh, some sort of a, a negotiated settlement rather than overt hostility. In fact, in the picture that was shown, that neighborhood is not going to be raised. Uh, it is going to stay and of course, will be open to gentrification. It won't be uh, destroyed. So uh, the, uh, the, the notion then is um, the notion then is that these new uh, this new uh, sort of uh, uh, situation in the city is creating a new spatial pattern with the um, uh, this, the central historic areas becoming gentrified and very livable for the readership of the FT. Um, and, and, the, and the middle class, lower middle class, and poor uh, former uh, shantytown uh, housing is being pushed out to the edges. But uh, the, um, if, if Istanbul's population is in fact 12 million, and that is the population of the province as a whole, we can, I think, say that perhaps about 20-25% of that population do live in the very livable areas, uh, whereas, of course, the um, rest of the population have to be moved out. But so far, this has happened in a relatively civilized manner. Thank you. Thank you, Charla. And we will now move to my colleague, um, Gareth Jones, who's a senior lecturer in development geography here at the LSE in the Department of Geography and the Environment. And I know they're going to set up some slides. While we do that, can I remind you uh, that outside at the end of uh, the talk, we're going to go on till just after 8.30. We s started a little bit late uh, because of happy congestion. 
um, will go on. But after that, there will be uh, copies of the books outside and drinks and nibbles for everybody for you to hang out and buy more books. That's the idea. But uh, Gareth, if you could um, tell us your thoughts on um, Sao Paulo, but also more widely on Latin American cities. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thanks, uh, Ricky. Um, I'll nip out and uh, get hold of a copy of the book uh, myself, as I don't actually have one yet. Um, but I do notice from the first quick look at the cover um, that Sao Paulo gets the gun. Um, and uh, in the kind of urban whodunit Cluedo. Um, uh, and essentially that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about in my chapter and, and we'll kind of uh, uh, elaborate on a little bit here, which is this notion of uh, this sort of interface between young people, uh, representations of the city, aesthetics, uh, and although I don't actually use the word, I guess, stigma. Um, Cities um, shake uh, any positive notion of how social lives map uh, onto uh, space, positivist notion. Oscar Niemeyer's Copan building uh, that we've already been introduced to um, in reality becomes a key locale uh, in Sao Paulo for uh, the storage of contraband, brothels, drug dealing, uh, sex shows and, uh, uh, and pole dancing clubs as well as a host of informal businesses of both the old and the new uh, economies. The heretical uses of spaces and objects, as Michel de Certeau indicated, um, afford cities an enigmatic quality. The enigma of the city um, is vital, uh, I argue, um, to its social life. And in my chapter for Endless City, um, I take as a point of departure um, the work of Georg Simmel. He's kind of my straw man ghost um, through uh, the piece. Um, Simmel was fascinated and worried um, by the quickening pace of the city under capitalism and by the dissociated presence of the individual in the crowd. If Vienna at the turn of the century bothered him, what feelings would the contemporary Latin American city induce in him today? In the piece for Endless, I refer to the crowds of the Santa Muerte rituals in the Barrio Bravo of Mexico, in Tepito in Mexico City. Uh, Santa Muerte is a, is a death cult uh, ritual of sorts, uh, which is popular uh, amongst uh, ex-prisoners, gang members, uh, drug addicts, uh, and generally the informal sector uh, and those fallen on neoliberal hard times. Uh, needless to say, um, it is not exactly condoned by the Catholic Church, um, but it is tolerated to some extent by the city government, uh, depending on its hue uh, and position in the electoral cycle. Um, but Simmel might just as well be startled by Sao Paulo, um, and uh, perhaps in different ways. He might wonder what purpose speed has in this particular city. Sao Paulo is the fast space of Brazil. It is where the fast bucks are made, the newest architecture, as we've already seen with one of Ricky's slides, um, gets thrown up. It was also the city that in the 1970s and the 1980s, the labor movement attempted to slow down. Ironically, the labor movement organized around the automobile industry. And of more recently, it is the city of gridlock. Nowhere does traffic feel slower 
than in the Barini district, the hub of Brazil's new financial economy. Simul might wonder, um, looking at Sao Paulo uh, here in the downtown, um, where does social life and commerce, uh, social life end and commerce begin? What is the purpose um, of the street uh, under certain circumstances? Elsewhere, um, he would probably consider how people live together. How do they cooperate, tolerate? How do they become neighbours in precarious landscapes in which their economic well-being is not predicated on access to organised jobs in industry, the public sector or services? Sao Paulo has gone on... on undergone enormous process of social spatial change in the last decade alone that I don't looked at across a century. One indication is of differences within the city and a process of favelarization has taken place in Sao Paulo in two senses and it's perhaps the second um, less positivistic one uh, that I'm really interested in. The first however is that the favela population um, has grown in the city despite the political economy uh, and changing times. The favela population of Sao Paulo um, approximately has grown six times faster than the metropolitan population uh, as a whole. But this, uh, the metropolitan government at various levels has also um, uh, held to a policy of evictions and so the actual space devoted to the favela um, has reduced. Favelas, therefore, have become more dense spaces within the city. But secondly, um, and as I partly pick up on the work of Teresa Caldera uh, here, um, spaces formally referred to in Sao Paulo rather generically as just the periphery of the city, or indeed just sort of generally lower income areas of the city, are increasingly referred to as favela, even if in legalistic terms uh, they are not, and even if favela is more commonly a term associated with other cities, uh, notably Rio de Janeiro. The representation, if you like, and the stigma um, that goes with the favela then, and with other spaces in the city, um, is, is a kind of a key trait uh, that I want to pull out, and it's that sort of enigmatic position of the favela uh, and its vitality to social life of the city uh, that I'm kind of interested in. Getting on in a space like uh, Parisopolis or, or other spaces within the city um, depends on close and intimate uh, ties with family, with household uh, and with <coughs> neighbours. What we're not terribly good at is considering by what codes, what social signs, um, people in these precarious favela settings um, read into the morals and motives of their neighbours upon deciding whether they are to be trusted, whether they are to cooperate or tolerate their presence, how they get on and get by with those in these increasingly dense um, urban terrains. Is work a sign of trustworthiness in the favela or indeed anywhere else? Is church going? And what control uh, parents have over the young? What are the kind of moral economies and moral situations that people are judging others by. Walter Salas's uh, 2008 film, uh, Lina the Passer, uh, shows young members of a single parent household trying to find attachments in the city of Sao Paulo. So uh, it's a, a very good film, I recommend it uh, thoroughly. 
What the film shows is that the younger members of the family, uh, boys, um, try and find some non-domestic attachment to the city through football, through religion, in this particular case Pentecostalism, through crime, and in particular um, through driving, and eventually, in the case of the youngest boy, of stealing a city bus uh, and driving it through the city. And I pick up on some of those kind of issues, that notion of kind of social life and attachment in the, in the chapter, thinking about favela-type spaces elsewhere in Latin America, thinking about how little we really know about um, these other ways of finding sort of associational life in these particular spaces. To what do people draw attachments from their domestic setting into the wider colonia and or, or city? Funeral clubs, impromptu cinemas, uh, microfinance institutions, and of course the church uh, in various guises. Um, the, uh, the supply of churches uh, in lower income parts of Latin American cities um, uh, is not keeping up with the demand uh, I would put it in rather neoclassical terms. In these endeavours, um, and underscored by Salas in his film, um, each person uh, of the household finds some fleeting social connection with other people, though not one that ultimately it proves they can trust, and each is let down badly uh, by the wider social connections and by the city in general. Contrary to the gridlock of the city's conventional image, however, Lina de Passa shows how young people navigate and cross the city at some speed. Mobility is a theme throughout. One son is a motorcycle courier, the other a gas station, a station attendant, the soccer protégé trials for Corinthians, uh, and the uh, 10 or 12-year-old boy uh, drives a city bus uh, once he's stolen it. It speaks to an issue that is interesting me, as well as uh, colleagues such as Teresa Caldera, namely, how do cities of walls, to use her phrase, become transgressed? More importantly, what are the implications of these transgressions, especially for how we imagine social and spatial lives? In a city such as Sao Paulo, um, this notion of transgression is a vital concern. Space is closely guarded and transgression needs to be conducted um, with some care. Sao Paulo has three times as many private security guards as public police officers, although which you trust more is, is a matter of some debate and anecdote. Twice as many weapons are held by private security guards as are held in the hands of the public police. There is an asymmetry of the potential of violence between the private uh, and the public sectors, in cities such as Sao Paulo, and the private sector has very much the upper hand. Crossing over the walls, and indeed maybe painting on them uh, and transgressing spaces in other ways then, uh, is an important act, uh, particularly for young people, though not exclusively. It's a an important marker uh, for the sort of social vitality of public space. But it is also, generally speaking, at least in this slide and in others, um, spaces, uh, actions uh, which are condoned uh, in the public sphere. These do not take place as spontaneously, uh, these tags and marks as spontaneously uh, as they may uh, instantly appear. The agent which condones them, however, may not necessarily be the state uh, or private business interests. And in many instances, um, it, they may uh, be 
gangs or uh, local political bosses and others. The city then becomes a contested space for different versions of sociability uh, and for aesthetics and what in the endless chapter, uh, endless book chapter, I refer to... Uh, Freud is for another day and another lecture, but uh, uh, referred to the, a quote from Carlos Monsivais uh, and his term, The Aesthetics of Multitude. As we move from the kind of formalised graffiti, the condoned graffiti uh, of the previous slide, we move into um, this form of kind of tagging, which in Sao Paulo is called Pichasal, um, that takes place again in very key locales and in particular with an emphasis on transgressive spaces, bridges, underpasses, uh, the sides of public buildings uh, and, uh, and private uh, apartment blocks, etc. The pichadores uh, mark out territories, not so much in ways which are like the US tags, the limits of their territory, but actually the central nodes of the territory, what are called spots. Although not all pichas are young, they highlight the way that the city spaces are made by the young. As the Komarovs have noted, perhaps rather optimistically, youth is not only a signifier of exclusion, of impossibility, emasculation, denigration and futility, but the young remain a constant source of creativity, ingenuity, possibility, empowerment, a source of alternative yet-to-be-imagined futures. This is Picha Sal in Sao Paulo going up the sides of buildings. So that's one spot. The marking of city walls and the transgression of spaces, however, is not, as I've already suggested, a kind of an equal um, endeavour. And there are contestations between graffiti, Picha Sal, uh, and these other markers, the CV here uh, for the Commando Vermelo, uh, the, uh, the drug gangs uh, in this particular case are from Rio. As social scientists of an older persuasion, um, our navigation of space is probably not fully attuned to these finer markings of the city walls. If not on hearsay, or what I prefer to call fearsay, then we can call up homicide data uh, to underscore our fear of the city or parts of it. For the young, however, the codes of the city indicate pleasure or peril in different ways. A baile funk um, may indicate that a favela is quiet. So the noise is the inverse to its quietness in terms of its homicide rate uh, or, its, uh, or its propensity for mugging. What it means, or what it may mean, is that a commando is in complete control or that this is done with the deal of the state uh, and in particular of the police. In Sao Paulo, the Primero Commando de Capital uh, conducted and conducts um, regular negotiations with the state. Um, not agreements as such, more sort of steers and suggestions as to which areas should be policed, which ones maybe have a lighter touch, which prisons are open and closed, where the drug points um, will be and which drugs uh, will be available and or not. <coughs> Homicide rates, incidentally, can fall with both high levels of policing, uh, as Rio is uh, experiencing in present, uh, present days, and with commando dominance, as Sao Paulo experienced uh, in the late 1990s and early 2000s. The codes of the street and the marks on walls and the transgressions indicate these differences, distinctions between safe spaces and the danger. Music, however, um, music from speakers may support 
um, the graffiti marks uh, and the Pichasau and indicate which commando or which faction is in charge at a particular moment. Different favela, I'm kind of drawing from Rio rather than Sao Paulo in this instance, different favela have different rhythms indicating which commando has the upper hand and talk about that a bit um, in the chapter. The city's soundscape then is not so much a kind of a backbeat or a background noise but another code that indicates for some the presence of conviviality or danger. My final point relates um, to the aesthetics of the city and kind of tries to bring together um, this notion of sort of stigma and representation, uh, youth uh, and danger and signs of danger uh, or, uh, 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 or, or conviviality and the notion of aesthetics and the aesthetics of multitude as Montsevice would have it. The city um, as aesthetic and as social association. In both Sao Paulo and Rio, there is an enormous creative energy being expressed that is taking inspiration from graffiti and rap, situationist art, and less easily defined interventions. And I just want to end by showing some of the uh, imagery um, from various uh, favela. These are all from uh, Rio in actual fact. Not all of them are, are by any means unproblematic, so I don't want to suggest that this is a sort of a neat solution uh, through urban design or art uh, to uh, other perceived problems of these particular locations uh, but nevertheless I think they are uh, important uh, urban interventions. This is by uh, area called Via Crucero in, in, in Rio uh, by uh, a Dutch uh, team but working quite closely uh, with, the, uh, with the area and over a number of months they painted these steps, in fact over a number of years thank you, actually uh, and it's also become a kind of party space that links the higher and the lower areas of the favela and, and indeed a whole series of social um, organisations as well. Um, the work of JR um, is known, um, anybody who went to Tate Modern at the Bank uh, a few years ago, uh, but also his work in Nairobi uh, and here in Providencia uh, in Rio, using the favela as a kind of a backdrop and projecting uh, artworks onto the sides of the favela, um, overlooking uh, the, uh, over the city, over the downtown uh, of, of Rio. And a slightly different one, which is where the favela itself and, and young people within the favela um, incorporate notions of art with sort of social uh, action to create spaces which both reflect the city and talk about their lives within the city, in this case uh, military policing of the city, on the left, um, and also then reflect upon their position within the city uh, on a relatively sort of week-by-week -week, uh, basis. The current work that I'm um, doing and kind of which folds out of the, uh, the endless chapter um, is to think about what these particular uh, art interventions and many others uh, consider uh, and, and how we might understand them as particular transgressions which not only move over the walls of the city from the rich to the poor, from the downtown to the periphery, uh, from commercial spaces to living spaces, etc., but also have a very powerful international dimension to them in which the aesthetics and representation uh, has some, I believe, uh, or at least I'm, I'm partially arguing, uh, some emancipatory potential. Um, to conclude then in the book, um, to go back to Simmel, um, Simmel considered how people would cope with the fast pace of city life. He thought people's instinct would be to shut themselves off, 
The impulse to originality would give way to order in which everyone would become cogs of some urban capitalist machine. Individualism would be limited, associational life would be functional. But in Latin America, I think we can still sense, as I think we can probably sense everywhere, the dramatic variability of social life, the capacity for everyday life to hold on to the quality of contingency and connection. Social form has changed in recent decades, the representation of the favela and artworks, not least of people have developed a broad range of strategies to respond to urban crises of various origins and effects. As Simmel reminds us, the task is not to complain or to condone, but to understand. The cultures of the city need to be understood as spaces in which impulse and originality are retained, even as their potential for change is as yet uncertain. Thank you very much. I'm assuming this mic is live, which it seems to be. Um, I'm Dan Sujic, uh, and I've had the uh, pleasure of the last few years of working with Ricky on making these books. Um, for me, one of the most interesting things about the whole Urban Age project has been the way it's brought together three very different groups of people who don't usually spend too much time in the same spaces. And one could enumerate those as, as three groups, the first of whom, I suppose, are the understanders um, or the observers, who could be seen as academics, but also sometimes journalists or sometimes enthusiasts, so the understanders. Then one could say there's a group who could be seen as the shapers, um, who are developers or politicians or mayors, people who actually try and shape this tissue. And then the third group are the professionals, the people that provide the strategies, the architects, the planners, the sociologists, the lawyers, people who try and actually um, make those favelas into places in which there is a sense of permanent investment, which has not to do with land title as much as to do with the physical form of that structure. So to me, that really is the essence of what the urban age has tried to achieve, sometimes more success than others, <laughs> trying to get groups who don't often speak to each other or understand each other, truly trying to observe this phenomenon from multiple viewpoints. Cards on the table. And I'm here, actually, I suppose, to interrogate two of the intellectual powerhouses that have fueled the urban age, um, Richard Sennett and Saskia Sassen. Um, and maybe we might start off by going back to that that pistol, the gun, which we keep seeing as a recurring image. Um, and what it brings home to me is the fact that though we could be accused of actually circling the world at 30,000 feet as a group and spending too much time watching one city blur into another, um, we're always reminded, of course, that cities are different. And I just might ask Saskia to kick off, really, to talk about what it is about the differences of cities that you know, could be seen in things like murder rates or densities, as opposed to the, the generality of cities. Oh, now. Yes. You see, I, I, I had a different format in mind. So indeed, these mics work. Huh? Uh, well, as some of you who have heard me talk before, I have slight obsessions. So one of these, and I developed that in this chapter, is, and, and I'm interested in the counterintuitive. So in the case of cities and economies and the kinds of cities that we looked at, 
and especially when you take sort of the rebuilt space, the central space, the space that has the office district, the luxury spaces of consumption, etc. The notion is that in this global era, cities are becoming more similar to each other. There is a homogenizing of the visual order. No matter how brilliant and original the architect's shaping of a building, you smell the homogeneity and there is no way around that. Now, I, <laughs> confronted with very powerful explanations, I'm immediately interested in understanding what they obscure. And it seems to me that one of the critical dimensions that this focus on the visual order and the sort of the, the built environment, you know, this rebuilt built environment, one of the things that it hides is that the specialized differences of cities are actually far more important in this era than they were in the Keynesian era, era of mass manufacturing, mass production, mass consumption, and also much less internationalism, if you want. And so when I then ask, the cities that we covered in the urban age, how do I detect their specialized differences? Given this visual order that becomes increasingly homogeneous, I mean, one of the things I ask myself is what actually happens inside those buildings? And I would argue that the office building of the 1960s, the office building of the 50s, the 40s, the 30s even, spoke the language. Am I supposed to go on and on, or am I? Absolutely. You will shut me up. <laughs> I, I, just, I, I wasn't quite. So, anyhow, the, the language these older uh, eras of office building spoke was a language of office work. I am here to do office work. And in fact, most of the people who were inside of those buildings did office work. Today's central business district offices or luxury whatever office parks, almost nobody does office work. The office work is being done in clerical factories in the Caribbean, in China, whatever, in the suburbs. And so then what actually happens inside these buildings turns out to be extremely specialized, but on a register of small differences, small specialized differences and their consequences. At that point, what I see in some of these specialized differences is that the deep economic history of a place actually matters. Hong, just focusing on China, Hong Kong and Shanghai, the two leading financial centers, very different cities. They are not competing with each other as much as we might think. The history of Shanghai, a lot of manufacturing, I know that Shanghainese partly founded Hong Kong, but that's still a different story. But Shanghai based on a lot of manufacturing, etc., etc. Hong Kong, no, trading, international trading, etc. And so what you pick up is that in this era, much more than in the standardizing era of the Keynesian decades, these differences actually come to full fruition. Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo knows, as does Chicago, knows how to handle the specialized servicing, the lawyering, the financing, etc., of big steel manufacturing, you know, industrial level agriculture, if you want. So, as an instance, just to illustrate and to market, when Boeing, you know, the large uh, aircraft manufacturer in the United States, big factory and office buildings on the West Coast where there is a lot of room, when they decided. To, that they had to enter the global knowledge economy, which in their case means a specialized knowledge of making aircraft, selling it around the world, et cetera, et cetera. They did not even consider setting a headquarter up in New York. They went to Chicago. 
Chicago knows how to do this extremely specialized servicing uh, of these kinds of very heavy manufacturing things. Now, one major implication that for me comes out of this is, um, is that cities compete less with each other than the common notion when you look at this visual order sort of feeds, and I think that is extremely important. There are networks of cities that are uh, platforms within this global economy that could be collaborating with each other, demanding more from that same firm, global firm, that is putting their factories, their offices, etc., in their cities. There should be much more uh, sort of politics happening. You have heard me talk about this for a very long time uh, among these cities. Now, I have a second point on the economy, but this might not be the moment, or, or have you just introduced me? I think I, I, I Well, I think, I think then I um, as they say, it needs say no introduction. <laughs> but we only have 15 um, minutes left. Maybe, maybe Richard, I could ask yes. you to reflect okay. in, in a sense on one, and one of the themes I think that you know, we've come to grips with over the, over the last few years is this sense of scale jump and scale shift and the question of whether cities can cohere of that scale. And I think one of the things that you've always been interested in is that sense of belonging and not belonging. Right. Um, may I not answer, respond to that? You question? know, somehow I thought you'd say that. <laughs> you have an anarchic group here, yeah. what can we say? I, I want to say about this project that th these volumes represent, and I'm picking up um, Saskia's initial uh, observation here about homogenization. When, when we got started on this project, we are people who are involved in the relation between making things, social, economic, geographic analysis. We wanted to know about the relation between the visual and the social, abstractly, but as uh, designers, we were also worried. We were worried about the fact that urban um, design, which I've just learned is a bad word in Spanish, but let's use it in English, uh, was producing pretty crappy results. It was producing more and more homogeneous environments. And part of the reason for this long eight or ten year how long have we been doing this? Seven years. Five? Seven. Seems forever. <laughs> it seems endless. Uh, is to find out ways that we can bring uh, more complexity, more difference, more depth into the physical act of making, into poesis. Uh, and um, I I want to just respond to three ways that I think what I've learned from this project about how we can make cities which have more physical character because they're more sociable. Uh, the first of them has to do with a slide that Ricky didn't show but is a striking fact about urban development, which is as these cities in the developing world have grown, and particularly uh, in um, uh, Latin America and the Far East, uh, the more populous they become, the less public space there is. That is, there has, there's been growth, there's been enormous geographic spread, but what we call the commons has shrunk, and it's part of capitalism's, you know, heavy hand. Um, development. And designers have been complicit in that 
by trying to shape this urban space, this public space, in such a way that it's pre-programmed for its use and that it tends to be monofunctional. You all know that in London, uh, by the fact that most of what we call public space is shopping space. Very hard to find a truly mixed space on the South Bank, for instance. If you had a heart attack, there is no place in the South Bank Cultural Center that's going to help you, help you out. It's for one purpose only. So one of the themes that we've had about this is a recovery of public space that can be recovered because it's more than monofunctional. Uh, the second theme, and here I come to, I guess, in a way to your question, is what to do about edges in cities. That's what my essay in this book is about. Um, a characteristic of urban growth in the last 30 years has been that there's been more economic, ethnic, racial, and cultural segregation in cities that we're getting a city of islands. We're getting less mixed cities in terms of the kind of, in Istanbul, classic overlay of many different kinds of people doing different kinds of things together. So what we're interested about now as a practical project is how do these, where and how can we make, bring these edges alive? alive? How can we, for instance, uh, take down a slide you didn't show of uh, Caracas? Well, huge, sorry, we, we live our slides, you know, I mean, these are <laughs> images that are in our, uh, they're like family members. Uh, one of our family members is a, is a slide of Caracas, which shows an enormous favela, uh, barrio on one side, very rich uh, community on the other. A huge highway, eight, I think it's actually a 12-lane <coughs> highway, in between with one bridge across, bridge that mostly maids cross. What do we do about that highway, which is a dead edge? How do we take down something like that and make more living edges? And our colleague Enrique Peñalosa, when he was mayor of Bogota, uh, spent all of his energy thinking about ways in which transport could be reconfigured so that this deadening, isolating walls of moving vehicles no longer set the city apart. And I'd say this third aspect of responding to your question about how can we change this hom homogeneity this uh, in the physical fabric has to do with an issue if you're architects or planners here, which you will know very well, which is the, the money that has accompanied urban development, uh, the <coughs> formal money that has accompanied it, has produced structures which are overdetermined form. You've got a great example of that in the Dharavi, that, uh, that's the Mumbai slum that Ricky showed you, in the World Bank uh, thing, project. It's not simply that it's cruddy architecture. 
It's that you can't do anything about it. The form is absolutely determined in advance. The way people live in that structure is very difficult to change. There's no history that you can build in to overdetermined form. So for us as a political project, and I, I think I speak for all of us in this, uh, the idea is how to empower people more by changing the idea of what we have about design, that it doesn't make finished objects. It implants DNA, it implants possibilities that people can elaborate on their own, that they can inhabit, that they can live in. And uh, one of the great examples of that is uh, Alejandro Arevena's little, seemingly little modest projects you saw in Chile. Those are ways for people themselves to build their own housing over time. Uh, and we want, we want the makers of physical cities to enable people to be able to inhabit them. And that, I think, will produce more complexity, more texture, and more of a sense of actually ownership, rather than simply being in a city that the city is one's own. So that's, just wanted to say, that's the kind of political project for us as designers in, in, this, in, this, in this endless city effort. I'm sorry to have talked so much. Saskia, I think you wanted to... Well, yeah, I just, we're just picking up on what uh, Richard was saying, it's like we're playing a bit of a tennis game here. I like that. So, so when you think we about... We happen to be married, by the way, so it's, it's yeah, all so right. We, we can all so we, to right. But when you think about <laughs> our good, old, complex, messy cities, they have outlived empires, kingdoms, right. republics, multinational corporations. And in my reading, one of the key features is that the city is an incomplete project. It of is course. always incomplete. And then in that incompleteness, you were sort of nailing down elements of that incompleteness. So we could, say, we could say that the endless city is the incomplete city. <laughs> How's that? Yeah, that, that actually, Do we like it that? might be a bit too many uh, words in there, but you know, we will I'll work at it. We will come will, out. <laughs> no, I like the, the endless, the, the endless book is actually the title for the next iteration. That was not very serious, I know, Data, and you look worried. Uh, <laughs> <should> I? <laughs> but anyhow. But I think, it, you, you I think there's a very important issue about... S sorry, Saskia, well, you, you actually wanted to make another point. I think yes, that's something quite well, different. Well, I was not, just a final little phrase. And that is that in that incompleteness, then, lies the possibility of making. And so when I think about intelligent cities... The more perfect, the intelligent, you know, charged, you know, full of all these digital capabilities, some of which is very interesting, by the way, but the more complete that intelligent city is, the more, of course, it will become obsolete. And I cannot imagine what some of those intelligent cities that have so much technology in them, once those technologies become incomplete, what those cities actually will look like. They will be a mess, I think. And so in that sense, again, coming back to complex, so Istanbul is just a great example, you know, so is Mumbai, of course, but these cities that, that are not completely over-designed or, you know, completed, I mean, that is really, I think that is the DNA of the city. Right. I really think that that's it. But can that really be scaled up to 12 million people? Yeah. 
I mean, can a city well, of 12 million people actually be called a city? That, that is a very, that's a tough question, I think, because I do think that a lot of what is urbanized terrain is not a city, and that is often confused. So we, for, for the sake of quickness, we just call everything a city, but it clearly isn't. And so at what point, you know, does it not become? But I think that some of what Gareth was showing, that mm. in these spaces of poverty, there is often more making. And for instance, I think that the capacity to make the social is actually a critical dimension of urbanizing. And when I ask myself today, who can make the social today? It's not the middle classes. It's elites because they have to. A rich person is something different from an elite of rich persons. Elite of rich person is truly a dangerous uh, proposition, you know, yeah. a single rich person, whatever. And the other ones are the poor, the disadvantaged. In the favelas, they have to make the social because they need it for survival, they need it just become, to become social beings. So in that sense, I think that a lot of that stretched out terrain that visually looks like a mess is actually a space where besides the economic functions that Ricky already alluded to, I don't want to repeat you, it's also a space where the social is actively made. And eventually I think that we, the middle classes, who have become consumers of the social, consumers of our citizenship, can learn from that kind of making. Right. The I'd, I'd, yeah. I'd give your, uh, another <coughs> answer, I think, to your question, which is um, this. To me, you have what you once called cityness. Whenever there are occasions where people who are unlike can encounter each other, uh, and where the encounters matter, uh, you don't have Cityness, you don't have what Zimmel called cosmopolitanness, when people are all the same, uh, when, they're, when they're living in, I wouldn't call it a ghettoized condition, but a condition in which they know <coughs> what other people are like. You begin to get a city when you activate that process of encounter which, with people who are unlike. And I think the great challenge of cities today is the least likely encounter people are likely to have is be between people who differ by social class. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, well I am a, a Marxist, but I, I fight it down. Um, what we are seeing in cities today, the enemy of cosmopolitanism is a resurgence of the isolation of social classes from each other. So that's how I'd answer your question. You get cityness, this wonderful word Saskia coined, when it, you get significant encounters between people who differ. Sounds like a great way to end the conversation. Okay, <laughs> and we can have drinks. We'll, you can talk, we'll be outside. Talk to us with glasses. We have no questions. Can we? Could, could, we, could we have a special round of applause for Dan and Ricky who have made this yes. incredible really. game?